KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is the Rundown, Philadelphia's local news podcast for Thursday, November 18th, 2021. I'm Jay Scott Smith here with Sabrina Boyd Circa and Brian Seltzer. We're almost to the end of the week, and today we want to check in on a few updates for some things we've been following and what's new around the Philadelphia area. Guys, it's been four days since we heard the guilty verdicts come in for John Doherty and Councilman Bobby Heenan. An update on that. We know Pat Loeb has been covering the story nonstop from here, there, and everywhere in between. A story that you heard first on KYW News Radio. Pat was reporting that Bobby Heenan resigned all of his leadership positions on city council, and she actually obtained a copy of a memo that council president Daryl Clark sent to other council members. That gave them the news that Heenan would be, quote, relinquishing his role as chairman of the Public Property and Licenses and Inspection Committees, as well as vice chairman of Finance and Public Health. So I think that speaks to the role that Bobby Heenan did play in city council, influential positions on a couple of committees. Pat spoke with Daryl Clark earlier in the week just to get some reaction about the verdict in the Heenan-Doherty trial. And this is what Clark had to say at the time about city council's focus. City Council will continue to do its work. We have a significant level of challenges before us. We can't get distracted. There's just too much work out here to be done. It still seems like Councilman Heenan has no intentions of stepping down from his position in general on the council until he's possibly forced to when sentencing comes down. But he did step down from some of those leadership roles. He's taking a bit of a step back and I think that just is another thing that goes to show the significance of this verdict. So now we switch gears and we head out to the Philadelphia suburbs where at a vaccine research facility, Merck's vaccine research facility, that is, they found some vials labeled smallpox, the original pandemic here in the United States, smallpox, a name that you just don't hear anymore and to give us a little bit more of an idea of what exactly was going on out there, we welcome in KWU's Mike Doherty, who covered this story. Mike, smallpox? Really? We're doing smallpox yeah, again? Yeah. It's not back. This was declared eradicated by 1980 by the World Health Organization. There hasn't been a smallpox outbreak in the U.S. since just after World War II. So we're not going to have to worry about that. But they did find several vials of frozen smallpox. Now, we were told that the person who found these was cleaning out a freezer and that, the again, the stuff was frozen. So, for, first of all, it was intact, so it didn't leak out of the vial. It wasn't like they were broken and all over the place. And the person was wearing a mask and gloves when they were cleaning this out. Uh, a pretty scary discovery. And these aren't exactly supposed to be just like laying around all over the place. Uh, there's, there's no word on where they are. But uh, years ago, I, guess, I think 2014, other vials were found at a facility in Maryland, the National Institute of Health facility in Maryland, while they were moving. So these things were supposed to be kept uh, you know, on lockdown, and they're not supposed to be out for everybody to have. And I guess we're finding out now that they're in places that we didn't know they were. And obviously with the disease, as you mentioned, it was largely eradicated. Thanks to vaccines, by the way. It was largely eradicated by the time I was in diapers in 1980. It shouldn't still be around, but I guess probably for experimental purposes, they must have at least some vial of it just in case something happens. You want to get in front of it. Has there been any explanation to how it was found, or was it just one of those kind of whoops moments? We just kind of stumbled upon these extra vials of smallpox. No, they, Jay, they were the the worker was apparently you know cleaning out a freezer, so you know it's not like they were uh, 
highly protected or anything. They were in a freezer along with whatever else was in there. And for whatever reason, they were cleaning that freezer out, maybe making room for the Thanksgiving turkeys. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) This sounds like the plot of something that could either be a TV show or a movie or something sinister. Definitely ominous. I mean, just imagine coming across a vial that says smallpox and you don't know if it's a vial of the, the virus itself, is it a vial of the vaccine? Like, what, what is this? Yeah, and, you know, who wrote that? Like, was it written by a child? Like, was it child handwriting on there? <laughs> Horribly labeled. If all it says is smallpox, that's so not detailed. <laughs> Here are these glass vials labeled smallpox. I wonder what that could be. Is it the vaccine? It is just... it an active, active virus? Like, what the heck? At least there's no risk of infection. It didn't get spread to anybody. They just happened to find it sitting around in a freezer. Yeah, this is all, you know, under investigation, as they say, Jay. It's all under investigation, but thankfully we don't have to see a another smallpox outbreak because we're not trying to live like 1789 out here. We're joking around and everything because smallpox hasn't been a problem, but this did kill millions of people yeah. a long time ago. It was the millions. Ori- it was the original pandemic in this country. It was the first major vaccine in this country was small was the smallpox vaccine. Some people in the military do still get it because, you know, they're overseas and you don't know what you might find overseas and people in the research community as well. So the the vaccines are still out there and they're still being used. They're just not uh, widely spread like, you know, the COVID vaccine is currently. Yeah, we're we're not in a position right now where thankfully smallpox is a problem. And thankfully, that's due in large part to vaccines. So we switch gears again here and we somewhat stay in New Jersey. A New Jersey man has been sentenced in his role for the vandalism of a synagogue in Wisconsin, but also being a part of this plan to kind of have these like racist acts against synagogues and and black churches, places of worship for people of color. And it tends to coincide with this rise in anti-Semitism that we've seen reported nationally. Mike, I, you have more on this too. Yeah, Jay. So the, uh, a man from Brooklawn, his name is Richard Tobin. He's 20 years old. He was sentenced to a year and a day in prison. He pled guilty to being part of this group. It's a what prosecutors describe as a white supremacy group. It's called the base. And what they say Tobin did was he was part of that group online and he was communicating with other members throughout the country and he was directing them and encouraging them to destroy or deface properties or maybe even vehicles associated with black people or with Jewish people. Uh, And this was starting around September 2019. Uh, Another man, part of this group as well, has pled guilty to uh, vandalizing a synagogue in Wisconsin. So, you know, throughout the process of the coordination, prosecutors say that Tobin referred to this this coordinated attack as sort of a sequel to Kristallnacht. And Kristallnacht is named after a Nazi night of terror from 1938 in which, you know, Jewish schools and synagogues were were burnt to the ground and people were killed. Uh, so he encouraged, um, you know, more of that sort of terror by having people go out and break windows and slash tires. And he wanted people to post propaganda flyers all over the place. He sounds like such a lovely human being and 20 years old. Yeah, it's it's really disturbing to see someone so young getting involved in, in just this horrible, horrible thing. And so the federal judge, uh, Robert Kugler, Uh, sentenced him to uh, not only a year and a day in prison, but he's also on three years of supervised release to make sure that, you know, he's staying on the straight and narrow and not getting involved in any of these other things down the road as well. 
One of the pods I have in my queue, guys, is a recent episode of In-Depth, everyone, of course, should follow and subscribe, that Matt Leon did with Holly Huffnagel of the American Jewish Committee. The American Jewish Committee recently put out a report called The State of Anti-Semitism, just a jarring, unsettling stat. One in four American Jews targeted by anti-Semitism in the last 12 months. There's been a rise in that. So to me, all of this speaks to, that's just another layer of evidence. Unfortunately, there's just a lot of anger, a lot of hatred in this country, and it's frustrating and sad. We were talking about in the morning meeting today, uh, there was an attack of an Asian person, and this is just the latest in another series of attacks on Asian people. You know, there's all sorts of groups that are under attack right now, and it just seems like there's so much hate in people's hearts, and it's super depressing. It also says something that they were targeting places of worship, which are maybe the most sensitive places to hit. We're not that far removed from what happened in Charleston a few years ago when Dylan Roof went into, went into this church while they were in the midst of a Bible study and committed this massacre. One of the most infamous racist bombings in this country's history was in Birmingham, Alabama at that church back in the, 19, in the 1950s. That was the church my grandmother went to. It always tends to hit home when you hear this and when you hear places of worship, synagogues, and, and black churches. We've seen mosques get targeted for years, unfortunately, in this country after 9-11. It's, it's kind of like the same, it's almost like the same movie that keeps playing over and over again. And, and now it's seemingly been stoked even more over the last really three to five years, I, I would say. Yeah, I don't think there's any magic solution. And I don't, I'm certainly not the person to know what that is, if, if there is a solution. Um, well, there's a solution but, for sure. It's called understanding and being kind to people and, and exactly. you know, talking to people outside of your bubble. And I don't want to rail on identity politics, but how many times do we see people kind of refusing to leave their group and get to know others? And then the fear of the unknown is really behind all of this. I was going to say that, that, that I think a lot of it is just not knowing, not understanding, not seeing people of different groups and then you can jump to conclusions about whole groups of people because you've never met one of them. And once you do, you'll realize it's not, that's not how it is. I think we have a lot of work to do to get there, but we got to start somewhere. And as we sit here and talk about places of worship, people of color, then there's the trial of the three men who killed Ahmaud Arbery down in Brunswick, Georgia. Last week, the defense attorney for one of those three guys he stood in court and took exception to the reverends Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson sitting in the gallery with the family of Ahmaud Arbery and said, we don't want any more black pastors and demanded that they be kicked out because it would, quote, bias the jury. Well, in response to that, Reverend Jackson, he said he wanted 100 black clergy to come down to Georgia. Turned out there's going to be more than that, and one of them is Reverend Mark Tyler, from here in Philadelphia, is he's making this run down to Georgia to be a part of this trial of the three men who killed Ahmaud Arbery. Reverend Mark Tyler is a pastor at Mother Bethel AME in Center City, and yeah, he is joining this effort to kind of clap back at, at that comment. Um, here's some of what he had to say. 
This trial is being held on a worldwide stage. We're watching. We're not going to be intimidated. We're not going away. We're going to be present like we were present in every trial like this, going all the way back to the nation's founding as we've been fighting for the same basic human rights. This has also rubbed others the wrong way, other faith traditions and also other racial groups as well who are standing as allies with us who are going to be there tomorrow as well. Now, it should be noted that the judge in this trial called the defense attorney's comments reprehensible and said they will not be banning any pastors or any clergy from the courtroom. But the fact that this attorney said this in in HD and in 4K in 2021 was astonishing to even those of us who thought we had seen it all. That sounded like something out of the 1940s. It did not sound like something you would expect to hear, especially in a trial such as this. And how about this development, talking about things that were said or weren't said. Second day of testimony for the man who killed Ahmad Arbery testified just about a half hour ago. The Associated Press put this out at the time that we're recording this, that Arbery did not speak, show a weapon, or threaten the man who killed him in any way before he raised a shotgun and pointed at him. So that was testimony from the man who killed Ahmad Arbery. I'm not on a jury, but if I heard that from the man who killed someone else, I think that would be a pretty important piece of information to keep in mind when you're deliberating. And it wouldn't take me too long to make a decision about something. Now, I've learned never to speculate on what a jury, as I'm putting, I'm taking off my host hat and putting on the guy who's covered multiple trials hat on here. Generally speaking, the guy who's actually on trial rarely takes the stand. And that there's a reason for that. Testimony such as that coming out of a guy's mouth. You normally do not see the defendant get on the stand at all. In fact, they highly recommend against it. Enough attorneys that I've talked to for stories and off record say we don't want him taking the stand unless we know it is absolutely vital. Hearing that, again, we can't speculate because you never know. As we learned in the Doherty Heenan case, you never really know what the jury is going to decide to do. But wowzers. I mean, this whole thing is unseemly because of the death of Ar- Ahmaud Arbery in and of itself. It's such a sensitive case, such a sensitive issue. It's so it kind of hurts my heart to talk about this and think about what happened. Um, but it does give me some faith in humanity that you get this one terrible comment from the defense attorney and a thousand pastors show up and show that, you know, they are stronger than the other side in this case. And it's easy to say things like love will win out over hate, but, and and then you look at these things that I, I can't even put words together right now because I'm just so emotional about what happened. But ultimately, I think we're seeing more people rallying in support of Ahmaud Arbery and his family and the victims of cases like this. It's a tough subject matter to talk about. I mean, we're not good. We don't exactly pull punches here. I'm black. Sabrina, you are. What? You are? I know. Hard to believe. It's shocking to a lot of people. <laughs> like this is, this is who I am. Brian, I know you, you get where we come from on these things. This is not the easiest subject matter to talk about just in general. And anybody who's seen that tape, I was on the air the day that tape came out. And it was hard being in studio when that tape comes out and you have to somehow be kind of measured in what you describe. But it's tough. Sabrina, not exactly is at a loss for words at a lot of times when it comes to these things. And she struggled to get through this because it's an emotional thing, too. I struggle to get through these things. 
to see this and to, again, it hits you in a certain place. When your mother, who's in her 70s, calls you after hearing that defense attorney say those words, we don't want any black pastors in here, in South Georgia, that triggers a lot of things in people of color, black people particularly, who, come, who grew up from that part of, the, part of the country. It messes with you. And then it's in a trial such as this where you have the visual evidence of what occurred. It's tough. And I think with what Reverend Tyler is doing, taking a stand and basically a show of force, this is a show of force from clergy around the country. And he did note it's also from other backgrounds. So I'm sure there are going to be rabbis down there. There are going to be imams from, from mosques down there as well. It's just about taking a stand for what they feel is right. And they feel this is the right thing to do to do it and to be able to do this in the midst of a pandemic coming up on Thanksgiving and everything else. To do that, it says a lot for what they want to do. And I, I just noticed it, Sabrina, when you got a little, when you kind of stumbled through that, I'm thinking I'm right here with you because it's not, it's not the easiest thing. It's just what can you say? You know, there, there are no words. You know what, let's end this on a lighter note. Let's order some pizzas. So let's talk about this here. (laughs) Our friend, the professor, the pizza professor who joined us a couple weeks ago, we've got an update on him, something that that is a good change of pace from what we just talked about here, Brian. Yes, and to build on the idea, this is a far, 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 far less significant issue than what we were just talking about, but it does speak to this notion of signs to have faith in the goodwill of humanity. That was one thing I took away from speaking with Mark Lucher a few weeks ago. Luca, Christina Kapaser, and I talked with Mark Lucher. He's a professor at Temple who is on sabbatical right now at his alma mater at the University of Michigan. People might remember this. He had a tweet that went viral when he posted this really sad photo of four untouched boxes of pizza, and essentially the story was he offered a free writing seminar for undergraduate students who live in and around the building that he's in right now offered pizza, dangled that as a carrot, free writing tips. Who doesn't want that? Apparently no one wanted it. Not a single person showed up. His tweet went viral, like 8,500 retweets, over 125,000 likes. But the good news is there is a follow-up and there will be a writing seminar led by Mark Lucher. And I reached out to Mark earlier. I asked him to give us an update. Can he tell us what's going on? So here's Mark. He's checking in. Hey, Rundown Crew, it's Mark. Thanks for giving the writing workshop a shout out. So here's what it's all about. I'll be running a casual 45-minute session where we will go over some simple tips for writing a great paper. And maybe more importantly, we'll talk about how to avoid writing a bad one. We'll cover structure, how to stay on topic, what it means to write critically, how to make sure you write clearly, and how to use your sources properly, which is something that students often really struggle with. We will demystify all of that, and you'll walk away with a much better grip on what it takes to write a solid essay. It will immediately lower a lot of the stress that students have about the whole process, so I hope to see you there. I love this guy. So I wasn't here when you recorded with him. I didn't see all or hear all of it until later when I listened to the episode and I saw our post on Twitter and adding the visuals of like this guy wearing his tank top like he's a he's a pretty buff guy like he must he clearly works out and then he's a professor just like added all of that into it and he just seems like the greatest guy i'm not in college anymore and i would go take that writing seminar just to hang out with him he looks like he if he's not if he doesn't have you in the classroom working on working on whatever you're trying to do with your paper he is certainly getting the work in in the gym it was he did try to take us to the gun show that particular day yeah. but i i just, just hearing this guy, it's like the passion is there for what he does. Yeah. As someone who is an educator himself, 
I have nothing but respect for the passion there. And I'm still shocked because all you have to do is say free food in this building and people are going to show up. So I can't imagine saying free food to a bunch of college students and they no-showed. That's just, that's wild. But it's great to hear from Professor Lucher to find out that there are going to be more people checking this thing out because he deserves, uh, uh, teachers like that deserve your attention. All teachers do, but teachers especially like him deserve your attention. And he really looks like he cares about those kids. And guys, the information about this writing workshop, it is November 23rd at 5 o'clock. Go to the website Brain Collective. Brain is spelled B-R-A-N-E, collective.org. And then look for how to write an A paper, an undergraduate writing workshop with our resident pizza professor, Mark Lucher. Absolutely. I'm so glad that this writing seminar is happening. It's just going to be bring your own pizza this time. BYOP. Exactly. BYOP. And with that, that story, of course, and everything else we've talked about can be found on our website, kywnewsradio.com. You're listening to The Rundown. And welcome back to The Rundown. I'm Jay Scott Smith, joined by Sabrina Boyd-Circa and Brian Seltzer. And Sabrina, you spoke with Mark Siegel, who's the founder of the Philadelphia Gay News. But he'd done a lot more than that. What prompted you to talk to him and what did you learn about him? Yeah, so we had a a long conversation. You can hear all of it on our other podcast in depth. I think it's about 50 minutes and I did not want to stop talking to him after 50 minutes, but there is a maximum podcast length that people will listen to. Um, But I wanted to talk to him about his life in general. I did some research and I found out that he was at Stonewall He was part of the group that founded the Gay Liberation Front, and that was all before he founded the Philadelphia Gay News. So I kind of wanted to hear, why did he start being an activist? How did he end up doing all these things? And he just told me so many incredible stories. He really kind of made a name for himself in national news by disrupting national news broadcasts. In December of 1973, I disrupted a TV show called the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite. Um, I walked on the set and uh, I sat between Walter sitting at a desk and the camera that was on his face and held the sign up says gays pro and yelled gays protest CBS prejudice. And this was live on the air. 66 million people saw it. And for the most part, it was the first time many of those 66 million saw a gay person. Of course, they cut it off after like a few seconds, but those few seconds cost the network a lot of money. Variety, the national showbiz newspaper, said that I caused the TV networks $750,000 in what they call tape delays. That would be millions of dollars today. He got arrested. They went to court. Ultimately, I think he only ended up paying about a $400 fine because he talked to Walter Cronkite and explained kind of his reasoning. There's a break in the trial. I'm out in the hallway. Uh, I feel a tap on my shoulder. I turn around and the man says, you must be Mark Sigel. I look at him and said, you must be Walter Cronkite. Walter says to me, why did you do what you did? And I said, because your show, new show, is biased. And he took umbrage to that. And I looked at him and I said, if I could prove it to you, will you change it? He didn't answer, but I went on anyway. Um, I said, 
Two weeks ago, you reported on 5,000 women walking down Fifth Avenue proclaiming International Women's Year. Um, you covered that. He says, that was a valid news story. I said, you know, I agree with you. It absolutely was. And you should cover it. I said, so why didn't you cover um, a few months earlier when gay people walked down that same avenue in the same n- n- numbers? He said, no word, just turned around and walked back into the courtroom. Next up, they called Walter to the stand. Um, and the first question the prosecutor asked Walter was, when these people trespassed into your studio, and Walter said, excuse me, we invited them. That blew out the entire case. So just by having a conversation, you know, by getting on that show, by putting his face out and being bold and interrupting something, he ended up having a conversation with Walter Cronkite, getting him to understand where he was coming from and why some of what he had been reporting was a little bit biased. And then he started reporting more on LGBT issues. Mark was able to get the attention of government officials like Pennsylvania Governor Milton Schapp, who then established a committee to look at LGBT issues. Just so many things came out of these really bold and brash things that Mark Siegel has done. Stonewall, he was at Stonewall. I had never really heard the full story of exactly what happened. And to hear that from someone who was there was incredible. He told a beautiful story about the title of his memoir, which is called And Then I Danced, Traveling the Road to LGBT Equality. The title comes from a moment when he got invited to the White House to a reception by President Barack Obama, and he danced there with his husband. And he kind of told me about how he thought back to when he first came out to his mom. So my mother gets on the phone and I go, Mom, I have something to tell you. Um, I'm gay. She said, Mark, uh, you're my son. I love you. But I'm really concerned uh, that you will be lonely in your old age because no one believed what would happen for us. What I would like to say now if my mom was alive, mom, I definitely am old. (laughs) Mom, I'm married. Mom, I'm extremely happily married. And mom, guess what? The president of the United States, Barack Obama, asked me to bring my husband to the White House, and we got to dance at a reception in the White House. Mom, could you ever think that 18-year-old kid standing out Stonewall would ever live to see something like that? It's a amazing conversation. It is on the In-Depth feed, KWW In-Depth. Make sure you can find that on the Odyssey app or just about anywhere else you get your podcast. Sabrina, thank you so much for bringing that story over here to the rundown. Of course, always happy to share good stories like that. And of course, we get plenty of good stories to share right here on The Rundown, which is a production of KWW News Radio Original Podcast. The show is produced by Sabrina Boyd Circa and Brian Seltzer. The director of podcasting for KWW News Radio is Tom Rickard. Me, I'm Jay Scott Smith. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Scott Smith. It's real Jay Scott Smith on Instagram and Facebook. And you can hear me every afternoon on KYW News Radio, 103.9 FM and 1060 AM, or of course here on the Odyssey app for Philadelphia's afternoon news starting at 3 p.m. You can also follow the rundown on social media at the Rundown PHL. Listen to us, of course, for free on the Odyssey app, or once again, just about wherever else you get your podcasts. I want to thank you for checking out this Thursday edition of The Rundown.